Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I am joined today by one of my good friends who also is probably one of the most, uh, I, I don't know, a politician that I look up to, which is very rare these days to look up to a politician, but he's somebody who I look up to a lot and somebody who I think is a hero to this country that has not been celebrated as much as he deserves, uh, whether that's in the media or in politics. And he's really led from the front as a Republican congressman from uh, Arkansas on issues of conservation, of public and private lands, of hunting and fishing, of climate change. And we're going to dive into all of that. But before he was active on these issues in Congress, he was on the University of Arkansas football team. He was a a grad school student and and graduate at the Yale uh, School of Forestry. And now he is the chairman of the United States House of uh, Natural Resources Committee and has a huge platform and a huge uh, policy agenda that he's working on uh, getting through with his colleagues and, and even across the aisle to protect our environment, boost our economy, and do all the things that this podcast has talked so much about. Congressman Bruce Westerman, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, Benzie, always great to be with you, and uh, it's uh, it's my favorite time of year, springtime, uh, turkey season starts Monday in Arkansas, so uh, we're, we're doing this early. I just got back in from the from the forest, from, from scouting out turkeys, so uh, I'm all pumped up and ready to go to talk about natural resources and how we need to be good stewards of the environment, take care of what we've got, leave it in better shape than we found it. Well, it's actually that passion, that personal passion that you have towards the issue that's probably the most inspiring part of it for me, because uh, that's that's what brings me to this issue. But you have your own kind of personal story. I mean, right now, you just got back from uh, a morning out in nature, and I would love for you to talk about that. But I'd also love for you to talk about why, as you know, most people, th- when they think of a politician, they think of suits and they think of, uh, you know, kind of stuffy rooms and you thrive the most when you're out in nature, you were out there this morning. What's your personal story of why you care so much about this and why it has been such a priority and why you lead on it in a time when not the Republicans haven't been known to lead on it, but it's not necessarily the the issue that Republicans are always talking about first and foremost. Why is that not the case for you and why why is it so important well that's that's a great question benji and i think it does go back to my upbringing and growing up in arkansas and some of your uh, some of the folks listening today may not be familiar that familiar with arkansas but our motto is the natural state and if you've never been here it's just a, a gorgeous place i'm obviously biased towards it but i live in hot springs arkansas which is a national park it's in the washita mountains the washita national forest and I just, I grew up in this environment. And when I was a kid, hunting and fishing were the, the things I did for, for my pastime. Uh, in, in school, you know, I played sports, I hunted and I fished and was in, involved in the Future Farmers of America. And, you know, that combined with uh, what we did at church, that was pretty much uh, uh, what my life consisted of. So uh, I've never lost that passion. Uh, I was sharing with my dad this morning about hearing some turkeys gobble. My little brother was out in another place, and he heard turkeys gobble, and we're we're really anticipating 
the season opening Monday, and and my dad said, I think I think my DNA affected you all with the disease for for being outdoors. But I'm I'm glad it did because if you've never uh, hiked up on a mountain before daylight and and you know be there before first light, and you hear the birds start singing, you see the sun come up. And then you hear, a, if you're a turkey hunter, you hear a turkey gobble and it gets you all excited. Uh, but it's just, um, I mean, it's it's refreshing. I've been out traveling all week. I've been to California having hearings on water policy. I've been back to Texas. I've been out in my district. Um, even had a, a classified briefing. So, you know, all of that going through my, my mind. But to get out in the on top of a mountain, out in nature, where you're just hearing the birds sing, seeing the sun come up. Uh, the beauty of spring, uh, you know, there's nothing better than that. So I want to make sure that my kids and my grandkids are able to have those same experiences. I want to make sure that we take care of the land that we have, take care of the, the environment and the climate, and leave it in a better shape than we found it. And that really drives a lot of the policy decisions that I push. And when did it? when did it really start to come to your mind that you really you had to marry that love of the environment that you grew up with that that story is just i think probably something that resonates with so many people but when did you marry that love and that background with knowing that you had to be active on the policy side what what did that look like was that in college grad undergrad uh, grad school was it when you ran for office when did you start to realize that the policy side was so important and when did you start to craft out your own agenda on this that Maybe it's different than what other people have heard of. Yeah, well, it's it's part of who I am. So, you know, my career started not not with a political ambition. I'm I'm an engineer. That's what I got my undergraduate in, and then I did forestry in graduate school. Uh, so, my interaction with the environment and with nature wasn't a policy action for for 25 years while I was out working in the private sector, but it's what I did in my spare time. You know, I hunted, I fished, I took my kids fishing. I, uh, you know, it's not just a a time to get away personally, but it's something that you do with family. Uh, We we used to camp a lot. My kids enjoyed camping more when they were growing up than than anything else. And uh, we've got a beautiful lake where we can load the tent up in the boat go out on an island and, and camp out there and fish and swim and just relax. So, you know, I was just enjoying everything uh, up until I got into the politics. And then I uh, ran for a school board. You don't deal with a lot of uh, environmental policy on the school board. And I got in the state legislature and, you know, started getting more and more involved in it. Uh, but then when I got to Congress, I found out I'm the only forester in Congress. Forests play such a critical role in everything. When we talk about clean air and clean water, and we talk about wildlife habitat, um, forests are are essential to that. Now, I'm on on the Natural Resources Committee, which we have jurisdiction over all the federal lands, the Park Service. I've got the Buffalo National River in my district, which is uh, an amazing place. Uh, so I've had an opportunity to to really expand what I work on and the the foundation I had with that uh, you know that forestry degree from from Yale. I, I've I've used that a whole lot more in politics than I ever realized that I would. Um, so it's just kind of given me a platform to be there working on these these issues that 
I can tell you when I was when I went to graduate school, I had no idea I would be in Congress someday. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's. It seems obvious to us, but I think to a lot of listeners, it's it should be pretty remarkable that for most politicians in Congress, when they think of the environmental issues, they don't think of the environment first. They think of the politics around it. They think of the ramifications of the decisions from a political perspective. Where you stand very different is that when you think about environmental decisions and policies, you are thinking about the environment first because that's your background and that's where you come to this issue from. Uh, you know, I just think of like Nancy Pelosi or you know AOC and others when they think of this issue. That's not they don't have that background that you have, and that's not to say that they don't care. It's just it's a totally different perspective. And instead of thinking about it politics first, you're thinking the environment first. And I truly believe that that is one of the reasons why the Republicans who have led on this have actually got the right approach and that the solutions actually can work. Because when you put the environment first and you have the background in forestry or you have the background in agriculture, which so many of the members of Congress on the right have these backgrounds on these relevant topics before they became members of Congress. I think that that is a very distinct difference between the way that Republicans and Democrats look at this. Other than that, I guess, would you agree with that? But also, other than that, what do you think that the Republican and Democrat approaches are and what what's different about them for a listener that might say, yeah, I love the environment. That's why, you know, I I see the Democrats leading on this. What's the Republican approach? What's different about it? And, and why do you feel like that is a better approach? Hey, I'm a conservative. I'm a proud conservative, and I think that makes me a better conservationist because the word conservation is de- derived from conservative. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican, who was conservative, was the father of conservation. And uh, you and I have talked about this before, but there's a, a like a philosophical definition of a conservative as someone who believes in unchosen responsibilities or unchosen obligations. And as a conservative, I look back on history and I see the, the things that, uh, that have happened in this country that have given us uh, great wealth that have given us great opportunities, that have given us uh, innovation. Uh, I look at our Constitution, and I'm a proud defender of our Constitution, and I say uh, I have an obligation to what people who've come before me have done. But also looking to the future, I have an obligation to the future. And a true conservative uh, wants to conserve. That doesn't mean preserve, and there's a big distinction between preservation and conservation. And when you're talking about, especially the living environment, you can't preserve it. Preservation is for for artwork. It's for an old historic building. It's something that's innate, but nature is alive. It changes all the time. Uh, Forests are continually changing. And to be a conservationist, you use what you've got, but you leave it in a, in a better shape than how you found it for future generations. Yeah. And yeah, you talked about um, you know backgrounds of, of members of Congress. Uh, you know the the engineering work that I did, where I actually dealt with with permits, and I saw the uh, the complexity of that, and some of it's very nonsensical. I mean, you can achieve the objectives in a lot less time and a lot more effectively, and you can get more things done. Uh, and, you know, I say we can have a, a strong environment 
and a strong economy at the same time. And the two go hand in hand. And there seems to be this mindset that if you want a healthy environment, you have to break your economy to do that. But look around the world. Look where the best environments are. And you also have strong economies because people uh, have extra resources to devote to to doing things right and taking care of the environment around us. And I think that preservation, conservation dichotomy is one of the biggest differences to your point. I mean, the left often sees this as, you know, this hands-off approach and, you know, in a perfect world, if humans weren't around and we weren't having an impact on our environment constantly by just simply living, everything we do takes resources in some way, shape or form from the environment. If we weren't, if we weren't on this planet, which is obviously not something that we want, um, then preservation would be the only option. Uh, but because we are, and because we're constantly having an impact, and because we're constantly using resources and trying to also balance the protection of the environment at the same time, conservation is really the only way forward. It's something that I write about in my book coming up. It's something that I think one of the cool stories was a, a tribal leader in a very successful native tribe on the West Coast told me that the only reason they've been able to restore the salmon population uh, on in the river that goes to their tribe is because they have the financial resources to put the money into salmon restoration. And if they were worrying about keeping their economy afloat or struggling with drugs and alcohol problems and the things that a lot of the tribes struggle with, um, then they wouldn't be able to put that money towards salmon restoration and and i think that it just it shows the exact the, the the broader point that the the countries the states the places where the economy is doing well the environment is well protected and and there is a direct correlation there that might have not always been true in like the industrial revolution and everything but with the information we have today with the demand of people to protect the environment today you need those economic um you know resources to provide uh, an environmentally beneficial resource in, in protecting the environment. In addition to conservation and preservation, you guys have been working on a, a pretty large policy agenda as Republicans in the House, ranging from a wide array of topics. But what other kind of differences are there between a right and left approach? And how does that apply to how you're seeing the policy issues um, unfold right now in, in Congress? Yeah, you're talking about the bill that we dubbed H.R. 1, saying this is the most mm. important bill to the Republican conference in the House. So H.R. 1 was called the Lower Energy Cost Act. And when you're talking about environment and climate, you know, energy is a huge, huge component of that. And I contend that what the policy we have in H.R. 1 is, again, both better for the environment and better for the economy. And it, you have to have a you have to take a macro approach to it. You have to look at the real facts and the real data, and you can't just make these decisions based on emotion and make them in a in a vacuum. You right. know, if it were, if it were a perfect world, we would have all the uh, carbon free electricity that everybody could use an endless supply, and we wouldn't emit any any carbon into the atmosphere. But that's not realistic. It's uh, it's not something that can apply to our world today. You know, America's done a much better job of cutting our carbon emissions, but there's a developing world out there that's uh, that's building more carbon emitting systems every day, and they're building them faster than we can reduce carbon emissions here in America. So if you look at it on a macro scale, how do you affect this globally? 
And the key, I think, always comes back to innovation. We have to be the ones that, that innovate, but it has to be innovation that's economically sound. It can't be a, a government subsidy that will possibly work here in America, but it's not going to work in India. It's not going to work in China. It's not going to work in uh, developing African countries because they don't have the, the subsidies to pay. Uh, plus, my opinion is when you subsidize technology, you're subsidizing away innovation. Instead of uh, having the market motivate people to create better innovation, you're you're subsidizing the current technology because you can get an economic return with the, the current technology. Um, and we also know that when you produce energy in America, we do it cleaner and safer and more efficiently than any place else in the world. When we use the energy that we produce here, you don't have to transport it as far. far. And we also know that when you uh, convert coal-fired plants to gas-fired plants, just because of the thermal efficiency and the combustion efficiency of, um, of natural gas and the, the efficiency of a turbine, you're automatically getting uh, less carbon emissions per unit output of, of electricity. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we can do to, uh, to make our energy sector cleaner. Uh, at the same time, we've got to focus on, on new technologies. Uh, you know, there's a lot of wind and solar being built that has its own issues. That's why our bill not only covered um, oil and gas extraction, it also covered mineral extraction. Uh, the demand for minerals globally is just phenomenal. You know, the, the, the statistic I like to use is the World Bank statistic that in the next 25 years, we need to mine more copper than has been mined in the history of the world. Well, America has been blessed with those deposits of not just copper, but basically every kind of mineral and element there is. Yet China is controlling about 63%, almost two thirds of the world's mineral supply. And in some of those rare earth elements and critical minerals, they're 90 to 95% of the, the global supply. And they've gone out and hoarded these resources. So when we pass policies to subsidize uh, electrification and we're not producing the, uh, the, not just the mining and the refining, but also the manufacturing of these goods, we end up exporting our wealth to a country like China, who is not uh, following environmental guidelines. They're the ones that are building a, a coal-fired plant, one, about one a week, 38 gigawatts in a year of coal power that they built. So uh, our, our actions have an impact. And you know, it just keeps getting worse when you look at these the, the Chinese supply of minerals, the, the cobalt in the cell phone that I'm doing this, uh, this Zoom on. It more than likely came from a, uh, a Chinese mine in the Congo with child slave labor digging out uh, uh, aggregates of cobalt and putting it in a, in a container to ship to China and make batteries with it. We've got cobalt in America, but we've also got a not-in-my-backyard mentality that says we don't want to disturb our areas. We don't want to do the mining the way that, that we do it, which is better than anybody else in the world with absolutely no human rights violations without, um, with, with the strongest environmental standards. Uh, you know, why would, if we're going to do all this electrification, why wouldn't we use the minerals and elements that we have here? And Benji, this just goes on and on. I can tell you example after example with different, different elements. So I think there's a smart approach to making a, a transition 
and and being more innovative. Uh, and we, we haven't even talked about forestry and biochar and biofuels and things like that. I'm very, very bullish on, um, which, again, we're blessed with resources in that area as well. Yeah, I would love to get to that. But before we do, I think just just to add on to what you were saying, the innovation side is really what's missing because we don't have all the solutions to these issues. And you're right. I mean, there's no subsidy or government regulation that will solve this because this is a global problem. And, and a country like India or China, they're not going to put those same subsidies and regulations and pay, and or pay more for the solutions. They're going to do what is the best for them economically and the cheapest. And, it, and it's only innovation and coming up with innovative technologies that will lower the costs to where a developing country will prefer the cleaner option. But until that happens, there is no chance that they're going to prioritize it. And we need to be doing that innovation technology here at home. And instead, we've been relying on a very uh, government-heavy approach when the innovation is really what we need. And you know, short and long-term provides the biggest benefit to move towards that forest uh, management piece and the biochar piece, very few people in my generation, I think, know the negative impact that our our lack of forest management has had on our environment and on our forests, um, but also the positive environmental impact that forest management could have. Can you talk through kind of why that is a huge, huge priority for you. What sort of impacts could be had if we did forest management right? And what you plan on doing about that during your time as chairman of House Natural Resources, but also what you have been doing uh, for the past few years to to solve this problem that, again, very few people know about. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to go back uh, first to, to Teddy Roosevelt again, who called forest the lungs of the earth. And then uh, take people back on a trek to their uh, their middle school or junior high science class where they learned about photosynthesis, where um, you know plants breathing carbon dioxide, if you will, and they uh, take that carbon dioxide and strip the carbon out and combine it with the hydrogen out of water, and they make uh, hydrocarbons that they store in the, the the tree, and they release oxygen back into the air. So we literally couldn't survive without photosynthesis and without uh, the, the service that plants do, and trees being the, you know, by far the largest component of biomass on the, on the uh, above ground on the planet. So um, they are they are the tool that eats carbon, and they store the carbon uh, until the tree is uh it's cut down and it either burns or it um, decomposes if it burns it's releasing carbon dioxide if it decomposes it's releasing ch4 or methane uh, so what we want to do uh, and what i'm proposing to do is to maximize the amount of of storage in wood and and in forest uh, and that's the the one key thing where we can get carbon out of the atmosphere that's been put in the atmosphere. So uh, it starts with healthy forest management, and we've allowed our forest, especially in the West, to go unmanaged. Uh, there's the like the perfect example that I think everybody will get, and it's in our giant sequoia trees. So uh, there are about 37,000 acres of giant sequoias on the planet. They all grow on the uh, the western slope of the Sierra Nevadas 
at about 4,500 feet of elevation. They grow in these very distinct groves. Uh, there's about 70 groves out there. And when I was in forestry school, and I think up until just a few years ago, people thought there was no way you could lose a giant sequoia tree in a fire. It's like they were built for fire. The bark on some of these monarch trees is like two feet thick. So it's just like an insulating material God put around the base of the tree. And uh, But in uh, a matter of two or three years, we lost 20% of our giant sequoias to catastrophic wildfire. Mm. And you know, when you when you look at the science, how did that happen? The way it happened was we, uh, after the gold rush in California, Native Americans uh, really cut back on doing the controlled burns. And then the Forest Service came along in early 1900, and they thought you wanted to suppress all the fire. That was the management regime they put in place. Uh, so if you look at the historical record, which a tree, because of its its annual rings is like a living history book. You can see that for millennia, that these uh, sequoia groves averaged about 31 fires per century. So every three or so years, you had a, a low intensity fire that would come through and clean up uh, the underbrush in the forest. And you had this more of a uh, open, uh, tall canopy forest. Well, there's also there's a tree called a um, a white fir. It's shade intolerant or shade tolerant, which means it'll grow up in the shade. But when you got a fire coming through every three years or so, it burns down these little white fir trees. Well, you suppress fire for a hundred to hundred and fifty years, and these little white fir trees become hundred foot tall plus trees. And just by the 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 shape of their limbs and everything, the the crown goes right down to the ground. And the fire comes through, it hits one of these white fir trees, and it climbs the tree. It's what we call a ladder fuel. It gets into the canopy, and you catch the canopy of a sequoia tree on fire, and you can kill the, the tree. And, you know, I've visited out in California and seen the, uh, the devastation of a whole grove of sequoias. Just as far as the eye can see, all you're seeing are, are tall black matchsticks where these forests have been destroyed by wildfire. Um, so I apologize for the in-depth <laughs> discussion no, this is there. exactly what we need. But this is, but the solution is easy. You go in and you cut down these white fir trees. There's some pine trees that, that do the same thing. You reintroduce fire to the, uh, to the ecosystem out there. And you take these forests back to how they've lived for, for thousands of years. You know, some of these sequoias are 3,200 years old. These are... Uh, amazing species of trees are the most iconic uh, tree on the planet. So we did the hard work. We went out and had a field hearing. Uh, ironically, most of these sequoia groves are in Kevin McCarthy's district, uh, but we did a bipartisan field hearing. Uh, we got out there with the Forest Service, with the Park Service. We got out there with uh, the scientists. There's uh, the Tule River uh, tribe. They've got sequoias. Uh, on their reservation. The state of California has got some sequoias. So we kind of brought everybody to the table, the community, and said, look, here's the facts. Here's the solution to fix this. And as a result, we've got a bill called the Save Our Sequoias Act that uh, last Congress, it had 25 Democrat, 25 Republican sponsors. It was endorsed by the Save the Redwoods League. It was endorsed by the Nature Conservancy and the Environmental Defense Fund and about 90 other environmental groups. Uh, who said this is the right thing to do. 
Unfortunately, we couldn't get that bill out of committee in the last Congress, but we'll be refiling it on uh, Arbor Day this year. And um, I know the chairman of the Natural Resources Committee pretty well, and I can almost guarantee you that bill is going to get out of the, the committee. And, you know, it's very important to the speaker, so I'm pretty sure it'll be uh, it'll have its day on the floor of the House. And it, I believe it's got great support in the Senate as well. So, you know, we could see some real sound forestry management put in place on the most iconic uh, stands of trees on the planet. And what a great example it will be for the public when they visit the Sequoia National Park or Sequoia National Forest to go in and see real forestry management and the, the benefits of it. And I can promise you there was not going to be any, any clear cutting involved. It's going to be thinning from below, taking this ladder fuel out, creating a scenario where the fire can, can drop down when it comes through. And the, one of the best things about this, Benji, is uh, the Forest Service has known this, and they actually did some of this management, and we had a fire that went through last year or the year before, and it hit one of these groves where they had done the management, and the fire did exactly what it was supposed to do. It dropped down low, went across the ground, burning the underbrush. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's not like there's any question of, is this the right thing to do? It's, uh, you know, the, the academics agree this is the right thing to do. But you're going to have some some environmental groups come out and say, no, you shouldn't. We got to preserve these forests. And again, you can't preserve them; you can conserve them, and because they're changing, they they grow until the trees fill up the growing space. Then they start they start start competing for light. They compete for nutrients, um, and they compete for water. And and one of those is going to get limited, so your trees are going to get weaker, and that's when you get disease and infestations, and you get too much biomass per acre, and fire comes through, and, and you've just got so much fuel there that you get fires that are larger than, than fires you've seen before. So, you know, even in a, in a world of, of changing weather and changing climate, we can still manage our forest um, to be to thrive in the environment in which it's uh, these trees are placed. Well, it's truly imperative that we do that. And I think, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask was, you know, why are people against it? But I think you alluded to the fact that, um, yeah, there's this kind of utopian feel good. <clears throat> we can't do anything to the forest, but let them do what they need to do. But like you said, they're they're ever changing, partially due to humans. And um, the best thing we can do is go in and actively manage and conserve these places so that we have giant sequoias for the future for a whole host of benefits. And I do think that people don't realize that in a state like California, which is not prioritized forest management because they want to do this preservation mindset, this isn't just something that Bruce Westerman and Benji Backer are talking about that isn't real. This is this is scientific. Uh, th- this is scientifically proven. California destroyed all of the emissions reductions they had in 22 years with one summer of forest fires that could have been so much less pervasive than they were if they would have done the forest management. And so the CO2 output of not conserving these forests on top of the ecological damage, the wildlife damage, all the damage that comes from that, the lack of ability for the, uh, the forest to store the carbon after it's been burned, all those negative impacts 
on top of the CO2 increases uh, of not managing our forests actively. It's definitely something that, you know, you have led on and doesn't get enough attention. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about EVs and solar panels and all these things. And one of the most important things that we can do to protect our environment and reduce emissions uh, is to protect our forests, to build and grow more forests, which is also something you've worked on. And if we had more time, I would love to dive into Trillion Trees, which if people who are listening haven't heard of that, it's an amazing, amazing piece of policy. That's uh, a global kind of effort that uh, Congressman Westerman has led here in the United States. Um, but with the limited time that we have and, and knowing your leadership on this issue, on forests, on conservation, on climate, I know you work a lot on the energy stuff with your colleagues like Catherine Morris Rogers. Where do you see, this is kind of my final question, knowing that we're up against time, but where do you see the conservative movement going on this issue? Where do you want it to go? Uh, where does it ideally go? And what role do you think the conservative movement should have on environmental climate issues going forward? How big of a priority and what does that look like? I think it should always be a priority and it should always be based on science and it should be based on a uh, on the reality of the world. You, know, you can't you can't take science alone and say carbon's bad for the atmosphere, therefore we're not we're going to emit no carbon. That's an unrealistic approach. Uh, we could even if the federal government in America was to make that regulation, that's not going to change developing countries from uh, emitting carbon. So we've got to focus on technology and we've got to focus on solutions that work and on solutions that have uh, the biggest impact. You know, we, I would call that the low-hanging fruit. And having healthy forests in America is really the, the lowest-hanging fruit. And there's so much more benefits other than just uh, carbon removal and storage and sequestration. It's, uh, it's beneficial to watersheds. It's beneficial to wildlife habitat. It's beneficial for outdoor recreation. There's there's no downside to a healthy forest, and we should be doing such a much better job with our, our federal lands on the forest. And then there's, you know, I, I say trees are a an old solution to new problems, but if I can talk just a minute about about biochar and, yeah. and where that fit in, uh, and and also using wood more as a construction material because when you when you sustainably harvest a forest, and what, what I mean by sustainably harvesting is that um, at the end of the day, there's more, uh, you're, you're not cutting more than the growth. So you think you're going to, forests are going to grow every year, and what you harvest out of the forest is less than the growth. So you're not, you're not removing any more uh, uh, trees or carbon than what is what can grow in a year. And as you thin these forests out, they can actually grow faster and store more carbon in a in a larger tree. But when we use these uh, timber products, uh, and we've got uh, some new technology called mass timber construction, where you can actually build skyscrapers out of wood. And this this table that that I'm sitting at, it's a wooden table. Fifty percent of the weight of this table is carbon, uh, and it's carbon that was stored in the wood. Uh, that the, the, the tree that this came from produced photosynthesis on years and years ago. And this carbon is locked up in the wood for as long as this table's here. Mm. So you can think of this table as a carbon battery. 
because uh, where this tree was harvested, another one grew up and started pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere, and we're storing this carbon. Wow. And uh, think of a skyscraper as a carbon battery. Right. So start envisioning our buildings and structures and furniture, not just as the purpose they serve for housing and shelter, but also as, as, a, as a carbon battery that stores carbon better than any other method that, that we can come up with from an engineering standpoint. So you got that going, but you also have residuals when you process this timber. You've got forests that are overstocked that have low-value biomass in it that needs to come out. And that's where I think biochar is a great product that, again, uh, biochar is an old, old product. The Incans made biochar in the Amazon, and uh, you can go dig it up. That was put there over a thousand years ago. So the the cool thing about biochar is it's almost pure carbon. It's a soil amendment that makes the soil hold water and nutrients better and makes those nutrients and water more available for plant uptake. So you think about the arid west where we've got overgrown forests. If you could take this uh, biomass out, make biochar out of it. Um, people could purchase the biochar for a carbon credit, donate it to a farmer or a rancher to put it in the soil. You can even put it back on the forest floor and it's going to be there. So it gives you a known quantity, uh, long lasting carbon sequestration that the market is dying to have that. There's billions of dollars sitting out there wanting to invest in carbon sequestration. But finding that right product is, is really hard to do. And this the accounting on biochar would be, be easy. And plus, in the arid west, if you make the soil, the agriculture soil, more productive from a water and nutrient standpoint, you get all of those benefits uh, that, that go with it as well. And then the byproduct when you make biochar is you, you, you heat wood without oxygen. You drive the moisture out. And then you start driving off volatiles out of the wood that are that come off as a syn gas. The syn gas is used to drive the process, but you get excess syn gas that you can condense that into liquid transportation fuels. So now um, you're you're really talking about some big impacts. Uh, I was I met with a with an airline this week that they would they would buy all of the renewable woody biomass fuel they could they could buy if it was just available uh, to purchase. So that's why the, the Biochar Act, the Trillion Trees Act, uh, all focuses on innovation and research on how you make these products and you, you make a product that the market wants, that you don't have to say, here's a subsidy to go make this. You make it and the, the market will come. And that's what changes the rest of the world. Not that our energy is the cleanest, but it's the most reliable and the most affordable. And by the way, it's the cleanest kind of energy. So people are going to purchase technology based on reliability and affordability. Uh, and in our innovation can make it the cleanest on top of that. I, I, I think that that's the perfect approach that uh, to end on that I think really explains what the conservative approach is. And what I love about it is that these are a lot of topics that people haven't heard about this, you know, biochar. I, I spoke at the national biochar conference in West Virginia last year. People don't hear about biochar. They don't hear about forest management. They don't hear about giant sequoias and they don't hear about, um, you know, a lot of topics that you have 
tons of value to add on the conversation, uh, like, you know, on the agriculture side, on the, um, on the innovation side and on the energy side, we've, we've, we've only touched the surface of, of where we can make progress, but this is the sort of approach that people need to hear about. And, and the world needs to hear about, uh, because like you said, you can't make it uh, clean truly because it will never be adopted if it's not reliable and affordable. And I love and appreciate, and, and I think America should appreciate how much that has been a central theme of your and so many other of your colleagues' agendas and, and what you're doing to lead from the front on that. Before we go, I have uh, three rapid fire fun questions that I think you'll enjoy answering. Um, and can, can I make one? Can I make yeah, one? Yeah, absolutely. Before you ask those? So uh, yep. I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably old enough to be the, the father of most of your, your listeners here. Maybe not. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm pretty social media um, averse. You know, I, my, my staff runs my official social media. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug one social media because you're talking about biochar and other issues. But you can, you can go on LinkedIn and you can join all these forums. And you can get the scientific research and, and find out what the latest thing is that's happening on uh, in, in biochar, on forest management, mass timber construction. Uh, and I've found that very beneficial and educational. Uh, it's kind of my kind of social media. So, um, so you just search biochar and, and that information on LinkedIn and, and a whole host of stuff will come up? Yeah, and you can follow that. When new articles are published, you can go in and read about biochar and you can really take a deep dive it's amazing the amount of of knowledge that's out there and the way that we can share knowledge anymore and uh you know it's probably more beneficial to society than cat videos or something well cat videos uh are beneficial when you're in bed and you're trying not to sleep uh bio learning about biochar is great when you're trying to to solve a a, a complex global challenge uh so I, I can agree with you on that interestingly enough my girlfriend found me on linkedin so linkedin may be on the comeback for education and dating you know it's it's a whole host of uh new uh <laughs> new bounds here that linkedin probably didn't realize they were gonna have um but that's really great to know and i and we can put some resources about the linkedin um kind of biochar community um when we post this podcast um but with the limited time that we have left, I know you've got to run. You've got really busy things to, or really important things to do in a busy day. Um, I want to know three quick questions. What's your favorite tree? Shortleaf pine tree, Pinus mill. That's the favorite um, evergreen. Uh, gymnosperm, my favorite hardwood tree is Quato, uh, Quercus alba. Love that. Okay. Second, what, who's your least favorite SEC team? Ooh, um, the, the one the Razorbacks are playing, but uh, <laughs> it's probably, I don't know, Texas A&M, because I, I played at Arkansas back when we were in the Southwest Conference, and Texas A&M was a rival back then. But, you know, Texas and Oklahoma are coming into the SEC, and there's just this natural Arkansas-Texas thing. So when UT gets in, it'll be easy to say who the uh, the least favorite uh, rival is or who the biggest rival is you know you go to these schools they're all great great schools and i know great people that have come from all of them but there's arkansas and texas is a long old rivalry that i'm looking forward to getting the new yeah reviving that will be a lot of fun and then the last question is where is your favorite national forest in the country 
And yeah, what, why is it your favorite? Oh, that's that's the softball there, Benji. <laughs> it's the it's the Washita National Forest because it's it's where I live, it's where I grew up, and there's just something special about it. But I can tell you, I love visiting our our national forest across the country. It uh, it's heartbreaking sometimes when I see how how mismanaged some of these forests are, but I also see um, see some silver lining around the clouds. Uh, especially here in the Washita, which is one of the better managed forests in the country. And a lot of that has to do with the public acceptance of, of harvesting timber and doing the thinning operations. Um, th- th- they've done a great project that I wish I could take everybody to see where they, to save the red cockaded woodpecker, which was an endangered species, they went in and converted the uh, lots of acres in the Washita National Forest back to pre-European conditions, which are uh, more of a savanna type forest with widely spaced open forest top where you you introduce fire every three to five years. Uh, you get a lot of vegetative uh, early successional habitat. When they did this, they not only in an area where they had to relocate red-cockaded woodpeckers to, they now trap red-cockaded woodpeckers and relocate them to other areas. There's also more quail, more turkeys, more deer. And the biodiversity, plant biodiversity, went through the roof because all this seed bank had been uh, hidden under the duff and the overstocked forest. When they thinned it out and burned, they just got a flush of vegetation. Uh, so, you know, I would like to, I wish I could take everybody to, to see that. Uh, one thing that uh, I'm looking forward to in May is the Natural Resources Committee is going to take a field trip. Uh, up to New Haven, Connecticut, and mm. meet with the. It's now the Yale School of the Environment, but they've got about an eight to ten thousand acre forest that we're going to go out. It's. it's uh, I would say it's the oldest managed forest with records on it in North America, uh, and uh, I, I want. It's going to be a bipartisan trip, and I just want people to go look at it and say, why could our national forest not look like this? Um, if if we would just apply the science. Uh, our 192 million acres of national forests could look like this. Well, Congressman, we could talk a whole, a whole, a really long time about the bipartisan efforts that you're doing, all the other topics that we didn't even get to. We've got to leave it there. You, you, I, I like to think of you as the the real life version of the Lorax, but in a way that is good for the environment and good for people simultaneously and so i appreciate the real life lorax the the 21st century lorax the one that is balancing all of the things (laughs) that we need for our economy and our environment i appreciate you taking the time uh to join this podcast to to tell young people about what this approach looks like and most importantly uh something that i will remember and hopefully all future generations remember is your leadership on this. It's truly appreciated. And it's been a blessing to be your friend and ally. Uh, ACC is lucky to have you as an ally and uh, excited for our work together and what's to come. Well, thanks for telling the story, Benji. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to come on and visit with your listeners. Um, What you're doing is so important because uh, we've got to get the word out. We've got to make people think about this stuff, not just, take the headlines and the, the talking points, but to dig into the science to understand what's really happening and, and you know, what's the logical decision? What's the common sense decision? What's the policy that's going to make the environment and the economy better for the future and give people better lives?
Well, you're welcome back on the show anytime to keep telling that story. We're going to keep telling it too. And uh, we'll definitely have you on again and hopefully uh, see you potentially next week and excited to, to see you soon and spend more time together. And, and thanks again for your leadership. Yes, sir. Have a good one. Thank you. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.